welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, the one and only fitness and nutrition podcast that goes way beyond just training and nutrition and helps you create a life by design. I'm your host, Cody McBroom, and with me today, I have an absolute legend in the hypertrophy world, and that is Dr. Brad Schoenfeld. Brad Schoenfeld is easily the most well-versed and Honestly, he probably has more research studies done on muscle growth and hypertrophy than anybody on this planet. He has been referred to countless times in this podcast specifically or just through research. So every time we talk about muscle growth, every time a guest talks about muscle growth, every time we bring up a study on muscle growth, we probably mention a study that he has done, collaborated on, or we specifically talked about his name and his theories. He has been in the game for decades now, and he is, again, one of the most well-versed, if not the most well-versed and uh, biggest researchers in the hypertrophy world. So it was an absolute honor to get him on. Uh, I've been following his work for I don't even know how many years now, uh, but I was really, really excited about this one. So uh, most specifically, he is a professor of exercise science at Lehman College in the Bronx. So he's from New York. Um, He has his PhD. And again, he spends his entire day, week, month, year. All he does is research muscle growth and educate people. He educates people on the college level. He educates trainers through his content and he writes a lot of books. So the Max Muscle Plan, Max Muscle Plan 2.0, Science and Development of Muscle Hypertrophy, and a long list of other books throughout the years talking about building muscle and and changing your physique. So really, really excited for you guys to hear this podcast. Today we dive into why he became a hypertrophy researcher. We talk about the opinions he has changed on muscle growth and training over the years. We touch on volume, training to failure, RPE and RIR, periodization, exercise selection. I mean, we talk about a lot of this and you guys are going to get a ton of answers, but most specifically, you were going to get a ton of evidence-based answers. So we bring up the research, we talk about the specific research done, but then also how he would apply it in real life. Because before he was a researcher, he was a trainer, which makes his information even more powerful and applicable. So um, as you guys can tell, I'm pretty hyped about this podcast. I'm excited for you to listen. So without any further ado, let's get on to the podcast with the one and only Dr. Brad Schoenfeld. All right, Brad, I'm going to save uh, the time from doing a long, drawn-out intro because I'll do that separately. And, and I think most people listening to this podcast who are have any interest whatsoever in building muscle or changing their physique probably know who you are. Uh, I would say you're probably the leading, if not the leading, researcher on muscle hypertrophy, period. So uh, thank you for all you do in the industry, first and foremost. It's, it's really cool to have you on the podcast. And the first thing I want to ask you is, why become a hypertrophy researcher? What was the thing that made you want to start going down the muscle growth rabbit hole and then take it as far as you did and end up um, at the level you are? Yeah, I'll kind of give you the short course is that uh, I was a skinny kid who found bodybuilding or bodybuilding found me or maybe a combination of the two and it changed my life. And uh, I was always just really interested in how to maximize muscle growth. And uh, when I, I could take my body to a certain, uh, I got to a certain point using basically bro science through following bodybuilding routines of uh, the champion bodybuilders and realized that I was not, I didn't have their genetics, nor did I have their pharmacology and started to pursue scientific uh, avenues, starting to look into science. And uh, I was a personal trainer at the time. And as I started evolving, it became more and more of an interest to me and also became more and more apparent that there just wasn't a lot of research when I was an up and coming bodybuilder back in the early 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s. Anyway, long story short, when I uh, 
now that I have gotten to be a researcher, I'm a kid in the candy store. So I'm basically researching all the things that I always wanted to, to know when I was a personal trainer and more. I love it. Yeah. So this is, this is kind of a perfect segue into, uh, my next question is really like, what opinion, if you have any, uh, what opinions you have that have changed over the years? Because I think, you know, being in, in the industry and being involved in hypertrophy so closely for so long, I got to imagine there's certain things that have changed. And I often talk to people about how the more I learned about the science of both training and nutrition, the more I realized a lot of this stuff is boring. And I don't mean boring in the sense of, you know, I, I love this stuff. I do this every day. Obviously, I own a training company, a gym and all that. But um, it's way more simplified than before. If I think of nutrition, for example, way back when I first started, the amount of variables I thought mattered compared to what I realize matter today is it's just such a big contrast. So I'm just curious, speaking of hypertrophy specifically, what are the biggest things or even just one big thing, if, if there's only one that have changed or your opinion has changed on in regarding to, uh, to muscle growth over the last couple yeah. decades? There have been many. Uh, I will say that as a researcher, you have what's called a research hypothesis where before you do a study, you kind of have a guess as to what you think the results are going to be. And my batting average is probably about 500, if that. And if you're a baseball player, that's a really good batting average. As a researcher, basically, I flip a coin, and that's I'm right half the time. That's not not that great an average. But again, it's it was based on on what we had thought. In pre- it wasn't like I was you know coming in with some new ideas or whatever. It was based on what the current, uh, or at least what I perceived as uh, what current knowledge was. So I can give you several, but the one that most stands out is repetition ranges. I mean, I had always been a proponent that there was this magical hypertrophy range and it was the way bodybuilders always train that six to 12, eight to 12 uh, RM range. And certainly it was always um, taught when I was an up and coming student that uh, anything below about 65% one RM about 15 reps was cardio. You were doing glorified cardio. And uh, I uh, have completely basically done a 180. The uh, research that our lab has carried out as well as others has, I think, provided compelling evidence that uh, you can build muscle across a very wide spectrum of loading ranges up to 30 to 40 RM, 30 to 40 reps, uh, roughly equally. I know there are some nuances to all these things. Another one is the anabolic window of opportunity, which our group has done quite a bit of uh, research on. And uh, my first, uh, I wrote a book called the Max Muscle Plan, the first edition of that book. I had a whole section of a chapter which was devoted to the importance of the anabolic window and consuming protein as quickly as possible. And really the research doesn't support that. And I don't want to say that there might be no, again, it's nuanced. It's not that there is no uh, anabolic window. It's just the anabolic window tends to be much wider than what was originally thought. And it has caveats. It depends upon when your pre-workout meal was consumed. Uh, I had been a believer that uh, short rest periods were very important to maximize muscle growth. And that was due to the fact that short rest periods promoted uh, post-exercise elevations in anabolic hormones, testosterone, IGF-1, growth hormone. And, and it does, except it's been pretty well documented that the effect of those acute uh, hormonal elevations are very, very modest at best in terms of their effect on muscle growth, if at all. And uh, that really, if, if anything, somewhat longer uh, rest intervals tend to be better because you preserve volume load. Uh, 
failure training. I was a balls to the wall proponent where every set had to be carried out to muscle failure. Uh, current knowledge indicates that uh, certainly failure is not on all sets is not important. Whether it's important at all is still up in the air. So those are just a few. Right? I mean, and there's others. So yeah, we keep knowledge keeps pushing forward, and uh, I consider it a badge of courage to reassess constantly reassess my previous beliefs and admit when I'm changing my mind. I don't even say being wrong because my mind has changed based on current evidence. So you're basically just reassessing and uh, seeing where the, where the evidence takes you. Is there any of those situations where, um, for example, um, the, the evidence shows that it's maybe not that important, but in a practical setting, it still might be the route you take in regards to rep ranges, for example, like the eight to 12 rep range. We know that you can build muscle in a rep range of three to 30, let's say. However, is eight to 12 still probably the recommendation because it's just more feasible to get your workout done, not be too like neurologically uh, fatigued from heavy, heavy lifting with ton of sets because it takes you forever to accumulate the volume if you're doing low reps, sets, stuff like that. Um, do you still see some of those things as like, yeah, the evidence doesn't support it, but I would still do it because practically speaking, it makes sense? Yeah, absolutely. So now what you're discussing... So what I was mentioning was proof of principle, what mm -hmm. the really it's you're looking at efficacy of a trial when it comes to the uh, effectiveness from a practical standpoint, you then have to reassess how you put research into practice is is really the art of training. So we, we can look at the science, but the science is never going to tell you how to train. It's going to give you insights into what uh, what can be done and provide guidelines as to how to go about it. But ultimately, the uh, translation of, of science into practice is, is an artist, somewhat of a quote unquote artistic component. And yeah, just as you said, so my general recommendation from a, a repetition standpoint, uh, for one, would be that the majority of training is probably best carried out in a moderate rep range, not because it necessarily builds more muscle, but it's more practical. It's a, uh, it tends to be a more efficient means of accumulating uh, repetition volume. Uh, it is not as um, uncomfortable as doing very high reps. If anyone has ever, if you've ever trained or anyone else has ever trained with 20 to 30 RM, it's uh, the acidosis is very uncomfortable. But with that said, my general recommendation is it probably makes sense to train across a spectrum of loading ranges where you train with the majority, let's say 50, 60% of your training is focused on that eight to 12. And if you are a, a competitive bodybuilder or someone that really wants to maximize muscle growth, then you factor in some higher rep training and some lower rep training. You get greater strength increases with the lower rep training. You get greater uh, buffering uh, capacity with the higher rep training. There may be, and I want to emphasize may, uh, a fiber type specific effect of lower versus higher, which you might get greater uh, type one hypertrophy with uh, higher repetition training and somewhat greater uh, uh, fast twitch hypertrophy with your lower rep training. That's still very equivocal at this point, but uh, we can't rule it out. And with given that, so you have to look at everything as cost benefit, given that there's not a downside to that and a potential upside, if you're someone who wants to maximize muscle growth, that's the way to go. But again, you'd ha also have to look at what your ultimate goals are. If you're the average guy or gal who just wants to gain some muscle, it's not going to matter. And uh, 
train in whatever rep range you like and is comfortable to you. So I can give, again, that's where not only is it the practical, um, practical implications specific to the art of training, but the art is also specific to your population as to who you're looking to inform. Mm -hmm. So I would have different recommendations if I'm uh, speaking to a college football player versus a bodybuilder versus a, uh, an older woman with sarcopenia. Uh, they all will have their own uh, prescription that would be specific to their own goals and abilities. I, I think that's one of the, the nice things about you having so much training, personal training and bodybuilding experience outside of the research too, because to me, what is truly evidence-based is when you can put those two worlds together, the research and the practical side of actually working with people. Um, you mentioned the fiber type thing. And I want to touch on that real quick because I remember when fiber type specific training was like a really big thing. Um, it was really cool at the time too, because it's, it made a lot of sense, theoretically speaking. Um, there's, and you just kind of alluded to like, there may still be some of that. And there's some people now that are saying, and I've just recently heard more of this talk where, um, it's less likely to be a thing because if you take a set to a certain level of perceived effort or close enough to failure or to failure, you're still going to hit those fast switch fibers, even if you're doing higher reps or a, a certain exercise or whatever it may be. Um, is there not enough evidence to prove that true? You still feel like it's pretty 50-50 or where do you stand with, with that idea? Well, I, I think that the, uh, the issue here lies in that it's not one of the, it's not binary. It's not like low rep training is going to just target your type one, just work your type one fibers and high rep training is just targeting your type two fibers. It would be a nuanced thing where you'd maybe would get some extra uh, value with one or the other. Now there's, I think, pretty compelling evidence that you get substantial fast switch fiber recruitment, even with very low rep training. That is, you continue on towards fatigue, that there will be, that the body starts to recruit higher and higher threshold motor units. But does it recruit all the higher threshold motor units? That's not been shown. Uh, there is some evidence that does seem to suggest uh, th that there is some evidence, particularly with blood flow restriction training. And for those who don't know, that uses a very light load and they use a cuff uh, where basically they're occluding the uh, flow to the muscle. Uh, um, or for, actually, flow out of the muscle. So you're allowing blood into the muscle and you're uh, occluding the venous return to the muscle. And thus, uh, you're getting this pump phenomenon. And anyway, uh, long story short, there is some evidence, several studies that have shown that there is a fiber type specific effect of that, um, of that type of training. Uh, it's less, again, it's, it's just equivocal. I will say that in contrast to what I just said, what, a recent study we carried out where we looked at calf training, we looked at uh, the soleus versus the gastroc and we did high rep, low rep, uh, did not show any benefit to, uh, high, to soleus versus gastroc. And for what it's worth, the soleus is a very slow twitch, uh, high, uh, uh, well, a low threshold muscle. So you're getting high, uh, high components of slow twitch fibers in your soleus, 80 to 85% on average. And there wasn't, we did not find any differences in whole muscle hypertrophy. Now we didn't look at the, we didn't do biopsies there. So again, there's still, in my opinion, it's still equivocal. And again, I think that people like to have very uh, hard, draw hard opinions because people like to be told yes or no on things. I'm generally reticent to do that. And the more I, the 
more entrenched I am in the research field, the more cautious I am in drawing conclusions because over time I, I have drawn strong conclusions in the past and uh, my opinions had been changed through other evidence where I now realize I shouldn't have been so, uh, I, I should have been more cautious in my uh, approach. And, and I do think that uh, this is the case where uh, anyone who has a hard opinion, I, I think is just over extrapolating from the research we have. Do you believe genetics play a, a role in the fiber typing? I, I just think of, you know, obviously athletes that you see that are just freaks. And then also too, I've, I've had training partners over the years who I would, you know, they would respond better to lower volume training than I would. And then also if you just ask them what they enjoyed more, they would say, I like explosive training. I like heavy lifting. And I probably didn't like that as much. And so maybe I'm just favoring what I enjoy more and I push myself harder there and do more volume or whatever it may be. But um, I'm just curious, do you think genetics play a role in deciding what kind of training from a fiber type perspective you're going to do better with? Uh, it's not clear. Uh, certainly that is a possibility. I think anecdotally I've seen that and as, as have some of my colleagues uh, who I've spoken with, but research wise, we can't say that. I, I will say that, I mean, not breaking any new ground here and saying genetics are always going to be a factor and how they, the, how they play out in practice still is we're in the very preliminary stages, but there is some evidence that, uh, let's say you mentioned volume, there's evidence that the ACE genotype, uh, so there's um, variations of the ACE uh, genotype, which have been at least shown with volume to uh, have effects on whether someone responds better to higher or lower volumes from a strength standpoint. How that plays into hypertrophy, still uh, uh, you know, equivocal. But uh, I certainly would not doubt that. And I, I think that uh, that's an exciting area of future exploration. It's trying to tease out now, if we can determine that, and you can then potentially uh, tailor programs to someone's genetics, that would be a really, I think, important breakthrough. Yeah. You, you know, you, you just, like, we're kind of talking about volume now, and that's one of the things I had listed, um, which I think I, I can't have you on and not talk about volume because it's, been one of the most popular hypertrophy topics over the last few years for sure um and it's interesting to watch because you know like this genetic topic there's some people who are extremely uh they're, they're big proponents of higher volume training and then there's proponents of lower volume high intensity training and as somebody who observes the field i see a lot of people who are proponents of um the lower volume high intensity training but when you really look at like the amount of warm-up sets they do how hard they go how like they push to failure if you really think of like the amount of volume they're probably doing from like a total absolute volume it, it probably kind of ends up equaling out a little bit I don't know if you feel the same but um, I'm curious really just where you stand there's been so many different research papers and so many improvements on those much of which you've done and it's been really cool to watch how um, we see that it's like oh more volume just means it is equals better results. And then you guys have been able to replicate study after study to kind of critique that more and more to figure out like, is it a percentage increase? Is that like, how are these like bell curves and these ranges of volume per person? Um, so just your overall recommendations of like what you believe is, is probably where the, the optimal range is and then how people can figure out that for themselves. Yeah, so first, the uh, research, uh, again, I'll reiterate, only gives general guidelines and that people can certainly make gains across a very wide spectrum of volume, uh, to kind of not similar to uh, 
loading, but certainly there is a volume uh, dose response that up to a certain point, volume uh, has beneficial effects on muscle growth. But some people do better on somewhat lower volume. Some people do better on somewhat higher volumes, how much that's due to genetics versus lifestyle, other lifestyle factors, et cetera, uh, is not clear. Um, I, my own personal perspective is that we can look at a general kind of range. And uh, I think current evidence puts that somewhere, you know, on a general basis between 10 to 20 sets per muscle per week. Uh, again, it's not a cutoff. There's no binary cutoffs to this. But I, my, uh, my opinions, again, have gotten more nuanced over time that number one, we shouldn't be looking at volume for every muscle group to be the same because volume can be strategically utilized to bring up lagging muscle groups versus uh, not necessarily being important for muscle groups that are more well-developed. Uh, and I, I think that also it's not necessarily a thing where you should be looking at volume as constant over the course of a, you know, a, a forever, you know, a, a training program forever that volume can be periodized where you have some lower volume to moderate volume to higher volume. So how you go about dispensing the volume, first of all, how you go about organizing volume over a given training cycle is not, certainly it hasn't been looked at uh, research-wise. We only have kind of anecdotal evidence to go about, even if, if that is a viable strategy. I can provide a lot of uh, logical reasons or several why that would be beneficial or could be beneficial, whether that translates into practice. Logic doesn't always translate into practice. But I think also importantly, we, we should be looking at, let's say you're looking at an upper volume range uh, as to having, at, at some point, the total amount of volume that you do is going to dictate your uh, overtraining response. That it's you know, at some point, you're, what you're doing on a cumulative basis is going to push you into a negative uh, recovery uh, stamp from a, into a negative recovery standpoint. And I would say that uh, that's why looking at volume, I kind of call it a volume budget. So how much total volume are you going to have in all your muscle groups? And then trying to segment that so that the muscles that you need the most uh, development on get more and those that you need less or that really are more stronger uh, muscle groups get less volume. And then you also have to look at the types of exercises. So, uh, I mean, a squat uh, doing a lot of uh, multi-joint, um, free, particularly free weight type exercises are more stressful to the body than doing, let's say, a lateral raise or a biceps curl. So these are all things that need to be considered and how the ultimate progression of that plan is put into place is, uh, is highly, again, artistic. And I, like I said, I can give that general you know, 10 to 20 sets per muscle per week, but that doesn't do justice to how you're going to put that into place. And there's many ways to go about doing that and how that uh, I have my own ways that I have uh, anecdotally felt work well and, and have evolved with them over time. But there's many other ways that potentially could be approached. Do you think there's any value in counting? Um, I, I, there was like two things that people started talking a lot about. One of them was effective reps, and then one of them was working like hard sets. So it, then it got into a conversation of like, well, this is the amount of volume, but you only count the hard sets, you know? And then it's like, well, what is a hard set? What do you consider that? Because now there's research that shows 
three to four reps in reserve is still building muscle. So that doesn't feel like a hard set, but does it count as a hard set? You know, so when you're counting this volume, um, I mean, what are your, like, what's the simple way to actually understand it without overcomplicating it? I feel like people get so into the nuance where it just gets kind of crazy. Yeah, uh, interesting question. Uh, any of that is pure speculation. Certainly, we don't have any research-based information to, uh, to suggest that is the case. Um, like you said, um, it's been shown that stopping at least a couple, couple to three reps short of failure probably is not any different from a hypertrophy standpoint or has minimal differences. Uh, and again, does that have to be on every set or... So, so the way we've actually looked at volume to this point has all generally been on pushing really hard throughout all your sets uh, at or close to failure. Um, so, you know, I, I think that uh, this is, these are areas that need to just general N equals one experimentation for everyone. Uh, the guidelines that we have are based upon, like I said, pushing, pushing hard on all your sets. So how that trans, uh, translates into practice Without having the hard evidence, it just comes down to uh, experimentation. Got it. So with, uh, I do want to touch on periodization, but before I do, because I think this is a, a topic that we should touch on first is training to failure. And you kind of mentioned it already. Um, and we just mentioned reps and reserve. And there's a, a lot of people, I mean, there's there's conversations on both ends of it. And and I've heard people saying three to four. I've say, heard many people say one to two. Um, as somebody who, is a coach, not a researcher. Um, I can value leaving two to three reps in the tank myself, but I also have a lot of clients where I actually have to program like leaving zero or one because I know they don't actually understand how to take it to failure, which means that one rep in reserve is actually like four for them. Um, but my question for you is like, where, like based on all the research and your actual experience, where do you think it really is? It seems like that a lot of research points to leaving, you know, two to three in the tank, which sounds safe for sure. Um, but it's also very hard to get around. And this might be just the bro or the meathead in me. It's very hard to get around the idea of, of taking it easy or leaving multiple reps in the tank and, and seeing that that's just as good as taking a failure, especially if it's an exercise that we know isn't going to lead to a ton of global fatigue, right? We're not talking deadlifts here or back squats, but lateral raises and even like a machine chest press and things that like, it'll definitely cause some soreness and, and fatigue in my chest, but it's not going to wreck me for days like a deadlift. What if I took it to failure? Um, so how do you tease that out? And, and what do you actually recommend? What do you, what have you seen in the research? Yeah. And this is where, again, research. So people like to think that research is going to has all the answers and we're just, we're still really in the infancy or close to it in terms of teasing out a lot of these things. Cause there's so many confounding issues. Um, so to your point, uh, I think that it probably will make somewhat of a difference depending on the uh, type of exercise that you're performing and that probably a squat, uh, you might be able to leave an extra rep or two out and still achieve uh, benefits too, uh, whereas you might need to be a little closer to failure on your um, single joint exercises. Um, Again, not this is not an evidence. This is not, well, it's evidence-based just in terms of kind of trying to extrapolate what we know into practice, but certainly there's not good research on this. It's, uh, it's kind of trying to infer what we know uh, and, and also based upon my own experience. Um, I do think in general, probably somewhere between two to three reps, but could that be a, 
some more. Yeah. My own personal view is that, again, we shouldn't be looking at it on a binary standpoint that every set should be one versus another, that if you maybe go a three RIR and then a two RIR and a what, let's say you're doing three sets and a one RIR or, or a complete failure on your last set, that kind of is more of an approach that I think probably would derive optimal benefits and is something that I've uh, tried to use in practice. Um, how that plays out, there's never been a study, certainly to my knowledge, and I know all the literature, uh, that has looked at different um, failure at different, uh, different failure strategies across a multi-set protocol. So going, let's say, just last set to failure with the others at a given RIR away from failure. It's basically just looking at all sets to failure versus no sets to failure. And then at what level are the sets not being taken to failure? You know, is it a two RIR or one RIR? Is it based on some uh, velocity loss uh, formula that's been used? So we only have, uh, we can only do what we can from the literature that we have. And uh, a lot of it is just trying to extrapolate what we have into practice. And by the way, I, I would say this, my own view is that probably taking some sets to failure will be beneficial. Uh, I certainly have changed my opinion. I don't think you need to take all sets to failure. I think that if you're fairly close to failure on most of them, uh, you're good. But particularly as you're getting close to your genetic ceiling for high-level bodybuilders, uh, this might be important to kind of eke out that extra uh, amount of muscle that you may be able to eke out. Uh, none of the studies that have been carried out to date have been on bodybuilders, high-level bodybuilders, as is the case with most of vast majority of the literature that we have. So again, hard to generalize. We can, there's always going to be generalization, but uh, when you start getting closer to genetic ceiling, certain things might become more important that weren't as important previously. It's cool to hear you say the last set to failure thing, because that's actually something I've been implementing um, myself and with a lot of clients to teach them how to properly use an RIR scale, just to show them um, what it is actually really like. And then they end up, you know, some newer clients who aren't as seasoned might squeeze out an extra two, three, four reps that they weren't expecting. And then the next week they're able to progress more because they know what their potential is. Um, so I would love to hear just your thoughts of why you think that because we don't have research, just theoretically speaking, why do you think that's beneficial? And um, maybe the best way or, or like future studies you would like to see done on this, if, or if even we could really, get an answer on this because you even mentioned like the velocity thing. When I think about that, I know that it is a accurate way of determining, you know, RPE or RIR or reaching that, that level of effort. But I also know, and this might be fiber type differentiation, but I know some people who it looks like they're going to fail and then they can, they can just grind out rep after rep after rep until they finish. And then I know other people who they, they're repping them out and then it's just like, it just shuts off and then they can't go anymore. So I think that the the velocity curve is very different person to person. Um, so trying to figure out how to do that is, is, a, is another ballgame. I don't know if we'd ever really have an answer, but um, your thoughts on that and just how, like why that last set to failure might be an optimal way to train. Yeah. Um, I mean, basically that uh, as you get closer to genetic ceiling, so I'll take a step back in that the body uh, adapts because it's given a stimulus that it isn't used to. Uh, so the body, all the body cares about is survival. It's not, it doesn't care about looking better in a swim, posing trunk, being on stage flexing. It just cares about survival. 
So when, it's, when a stimulus is imposed that is a challenge that it's not used to, it's going to adapt in a way that is specific to the demand that's imposed. I mean, that's a basic principle, a tenet of exercise called the specific adaptations to imposed demands. Um, there are, it's basically another way of progressive overload, if you will, that uh, people tend to think of progressive overload as just increasing the amount of load, which is definitely not the case. We'll have some research coming out that I think uh, will be eye-opening to some that furthers that. Um, but again, how, how can you overload? Well, that's certainly a way in that uh, if you're continuing, I would say, number one, if you continually do training to failure, that maybe then diminishes that overload stimulus to some extent. The body tends to get used to it. So having a, in some either periodized way or last set, however it is, it is more of a novelty. And also that you are pushing it to a, let's say you're not training to failure on, on any of your sets, that this is a way to then take your body past what it's used to and, and provide a stimulus that is not, uh, not previously encountered, if you will. With, you know, a lot of this stuff we can kind of, uh, and I want to make sure I touch on this because periodization is a big thing for most people, especially in the strength world, obviously, but not as much in the hypertrophy world. And we're talking about all these things and I think can kind of be encapsulated with periodization um, to be able to organize all these methods. But for a long time, uh, from what I know, periodization was mainly focused on powerlifting, Olympic lifting, sport, and they were pulling out any hypertrophy metrics that were tracked along the way, right? There wasn't any studies on hypertrophy periodization. And, and to this point, I still don't think there's much, if at all. Um, so it's, again, just speculation. There's a lot of people in the research and evidence-based world that just say it doesn't matter at all. Um, I really enjoyed reading your newer book, uh, The uh, Max Muscle 2.0, and you had a very specific uh, periodization approach in that book. And there's a lot of people who will take a very similar approach, but maybe do it more of like a undulation throughout the week. So they have like a, a low rep day and a high rep day and low rep day still might be the six to 12 rep range, let's say for hypertrophy. But, um, you even had a whole block of what you would call metabolic or metabolite accumulation training, um, which I would just say a whole block of that was just be, <laughs> not something I would look forward to because high rep training is brutal. So doing it w once a week is enough. Um, but my question is, is how would you recommend like periodization in general? Like I know we can't really point to research, but what do you think the value is there? Um, is there actually value in having blocks? Do you think it matters at all? Is it just a way to make sure you're organized and motivated to train? Like, um, or even the, you know, the acidosis thing, like is, is that period of time just to be able to allow you to recover from higher rep sets so that when you come back, you can, you can recover faster between sets and reps. Like, I guess just an overall all picture of just periodization and, and what we know right now, what you think is actually optimal because it's such a confusing thing for hypertrophy. Yeah. So the periodization literature at this point is very sparse and particularly when it comes to hypertrophy, even the strength, the literature is, is somewhat sparse in terms of not only is it sparse, but the, I would say even more so the types of studies that have been done, I don't think are well set up to answer the question. Uh, in, in most cases, it's a very difficult to, uh, topic to study, because generally periodizations effects are going to be seen mo over more long term uh, programs, you know, programming, whereas the types of studies that are carried out tend to be shorter term, uh, you're, you're looking to very stimuli and to stave off 
plateau over time where you're not gonna generally see that over short-term studies. Um, so with that said, I think that having an understanding of the different models is important just to have a framework as to different ways that you can go about quote unquote periodization. But I look at periodization as planning, as structured planning. So it's a way to um, guide your training over time to, to achieve an ultimate end. And that if you wanna get from point A to point B, you wanna plan that out. I, I mean, people that don't plan, I, I mean, there's an old adage that says, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. And uh, just like if you're gonna, if I'm in New York, if I wanna take a trip to California, I don't just get in my car and say, all right, let me see how I, I'm just gonna go West and see if I, when I hit California, I'm gonna, hopefully I'm gonna plan out that route to get uh, to make the most efficient way. Unless you just wanna see the, the rest of the country along the, yeah, even that you'd want to plan out. So you're seeing what you want to see, but you're going to want to plan out. Let's say you want to get there quickly. You want to plan out the most efficient way to go. And it just seems kind of silly to me to think that you would just endeavor on a training plan that doesn't have a, that isn't guiding you to get to ultimately where you want to be. And um, look, from everything we know that uh, number one, the body is very uh, adaptive, but it uh, it also, if it hit with a very high level stimulus for long periods of time, quote unquote, a stressor for long periods of time, it's going to break down. That's a basic general adaptation uh, syndrome uh, response. And uh, thus having blocks where you're pushing and then followed by deload periods, however you want to structure them, is an effective way, at least logically, to go about uh, channeling that program. Uh, there is some research showing that desensit uh, having a desensitization period, whether it be a week, 10 days, and there's some recent research showing like a 10-day quote-unquote desensitization where you basically just refrain from training over a short period of time can help to re-energize, if you will, uh, or re-stimulate muscle growth to a greater extent. These are things that are not well-documented that we only have, uh, we have very limited research to go on. We have speculation based on logic, but I would say uh, my one thing that I will say is that there's many ways to carry out a periodized program. And the, what you talk about in my book, that's one way. I don't say that is the, it's, it's not Moses handing the 10 commandments. It's a way that I've shown to be very effective, but it doesn't mean that other uh, multiple other methods aren't uh, beneficial. And I have used undulating uh, forms and still do. So it depends upon who you're training and the goals. Uh, you know, that book is more specific to people who want to either compete or want to just maximize their muscle for a given point in time. Uh, so how you go about training, I, even in my book, I specifically say this is a template you need to modify this to your own, uh, your own body, your own abilities, your own uh, goals. Mm -hmm. The desensitization phase, I've heard uh, some people talk about using uh, lower volume, like a strength block, essentially, like for a few weeks. Um, the way you just described it almost kind of seemed just like a deload, like just take a break and then come back to it. Do you think there's a difference between doing those two or uh, a benefit to one versus the other? I think there'd be a huge difference. Yeah. Uh, so basically it would be that you're not stimulating the muscle at all and thus it upregulates. I mean, there's, there's certain 
speculation we can have based on intracellular signaling and, and other factors, but that that somehow that it upregulates processes, anabolic processes, that when you return to training, become magnified. They are super compensated, if you will. Whether that takes so again, we have preliminary evidence that may be the case. There was another study that was done um, that looked at um, what's called demethylation. I want to get, I think this kind of goes down a rabbit hole where I'm getting too sciencey and I don't want to do that. But uh, basically this is, um, uh, there was a study that looked at how it affects the genes. And uh, there's basically what's called demethylation which enhances the body's ability to uh, achieve results going forward. And it did show that taking a period, a break. Now, how that may uh, be reflected in a deload isn't clear. I would speculate that they're very different things, that if you're stimulating the muscle, that you're not giving the, the genes or whatever the processes are that are involved in the desensit uh, desensitization, uh, the ability to... to resensitize, if you will. But, but I can't, again, I'm speculating here that we don't, this is not based on yeah. a lot of evidence. It's based on limited evidence. Right. I mean, how, how often, because most people, you know, deloads are very common to do pretty frequently. I mean, after, after every block, let's say, and that could range for anybody from every fourth week to every eighth week or whatever it may be. Um, I would say it depends on how often you're training, your experience, all that. Um, for something like this, where you're completely taking training off, how often do you think that's necessary? Uh, again, I'm purely speculating here, uh, and I, there's no research that would give us insights into this, but I think a good place maybe to start would be once every three months or so. So maybe you do a uh, four week blocks where you have a deload after four weeks, a deload after another uh, four weeks and another four weeks of training. And then you resensitize that, that could be an approach and see how that goes. Could it be six months? Could it be more frequent? All those things still are not uh, not known, and I would also at least speculate that that would also be uh, specific to your training age, your training status. So if you're more well trained, it might be different. I I don't even know how. Uh, I don't know whether uh, greater training status or more years of training would uh, make you need to train uh, resensitize more frequently or less. It's mm -hmm. Uh, the, these are all questions that I think would be very interesting to research, but to this point, we don't have that research. I, I had a feeling it was uh, at least a few months, if not like like twice a year, let's say. And I just wanted to ask that question because I think people might hear it and think, oh, like once a month I take a week off or like it's not a deload. So I want yeah. people, I wanted people to hear I, that. I wouldn't do that. Yeah, I, that certainly wouldn't be the way I would implement it at this point um, because not training also is... It, now, look, in, if you're taking a week off, let's say the study that I mentioned was 10 days, I think maybe truncating it to a week. And by the way, we are, uh, spoiler alert, we are one of my master's students is carrying out a study that will be looking at this topic for his uh, master's thesis. Uh, so we'll have results in, in a little while. That'll be some months away, but something to look forward to. But hopefully other labs also will test this out as well. Um, but yeah, my, my initial thought is that we don't want to, uh, we, we should be training most of the time that frequent periods of not training. I just don't think that would be the best way to maximize muscle growth. 
Agreed. Um, where does exercise selection or, or variety fall into this? And I guess, you know, there's sometimes I'm talking to people uh, and they think they're talking about periodization. I let them know. I think you're just talking about programming because um, there is a difference too. And even if like we take your approach in max muscle where it's there's a block of this, a block of this and a block of this. If you condense that into each week, you do a little bit of low rep, a little bit of moderate rep and some high rep and you vary it through a session or through a week. I would even say that takes periodization and kind of puts it into programming because it's less of a long-term strategy. You're doing the same. Th- it's it's ver- ver- variety throughout the week, but you're doing the same thing all year, let's say. But I guess my question with all of this topic is exercise selection. Like some people are changing exercises too frequently that they can't progress properly. But then I think there's an argument to be made where as you get more advanced, you can get more out of an exercise quicker because you've done that exercise many times. If you go to a new gym and there's a new machine, you're probably going to be able to stimulate your muscle using that machine pretty quickly if you've used it a bunch of times before and you're more advanced compared to somebody who's brand new. So do you think there's a spectrum of to where we should kind of gauge how often we can change up exercises? Yeah, a lot to unpack there. So I'll tackle the kind of the first thing you said first is that it can be programming or it also can be periodization because you could do like a block of all multi-joint exercises and then do another block where you're doing accessory combined with mm. multi-joint exercise. I actually have done that. So that would be a periodization strategy where you're looking at it in terms of the types of exercises that are specifically given to various blocks of training. Uh, so it, it certainly can be just programming as well, like you're saying. So you have to be, I think, somewhat careful in terms of how that's being implemented and when you're drawing conclusions there. To, to the second question, uh, very interesting uh, question, I think, and I'll give you kind of some of my insights that number one, uh, those I, I think I, I am highly convinced, and I, this just is grounded in motor learning theory, that those who are new to training should be training with the same basic exercises over and over and over again until they close to master those exercises. The body is getting used to to training at that point. You want to hammer in those neural patterns. You want to ingrain them uh, so that the body becomes coordinated and you can carry them out in a quote-unquote masterful manner. As you mentioned, as you get more well-trained, you're pretty well able to carry out exercise. That said, my general thought is is that uh, keeping a regular rotation of more complex type movements is beneficial. So whatever those are going to be now, you don't have to do squats in your routine, but if you are, it would be beneficial to keep the squats in your routine on a regular basis, because a squat is something, if I didn't, if I did a squat today and didn't do it again for three weeks, I would not be, I'd be coming back and yeah, I could do the squat, but I would not be doing it as well. I I would lose the ability to, um, to perform as well as I I would have if I had been doing it in a more regular, let's say once a week at least rotation. Um, Whereas a leg extension or a biceps curl, I could could do a leg extension today and not do it for a year and do it perfectly. Um, I think there is benefit to novelty in training. So I do think there is a benefit to varying the exercise selection over time. So just even different modalities going from machine to cable but I think it's better to do that on your less complex exercises. And I also think from a variety standpoint, if you're a bodybuilder, it's very important to try to look at your body from a applied anatomy standpoint. And uh, I mean, we just know, let's say that the upper pecs, so the clavicular uh, head of the pecs is going to 
be targeted differently than the sternal head of the pecs is. The uh, anterior delt will be targeted differently than the posterior delt. So uh, using a variety of movement patterns is just really important as well. And having an understanding, I think a lot of people don't understand that. And they uh, basically, it's just a mishmash. They'll do machine chest press, machine flat press, you know, a flat bench press. Uh, Basically everything is kind of redundant rather than working the muscle, focused on working the muscle in different, uh, from different angles and different planes of movement, et cetera. And by the way, I'll add uh, in finishing this, uh, I collaborated on a paper, really interesting where we had just a varied routine that was done on a constant basis. So various exercises that were done consistently over time. The other group, we had a computer app where they kind of just hit a computer button or the button on their phone and they got their daily workout of the day uh, and uh, basically changed every work from workout to workout. It actually had a negative effect to just randomly be doing different exercises all the time. Uh, had a negative effect on muscle growth. I was unaware of that, that last study. That's cool. That's, uh, I mean, that definitely proves my opinion. And I, I agree with everything you just said. I think that was a really, really concise and good way of explaining it for people listening so they can um, better understand how to program for themselves. So uh, I want to respect your time. I know you got to get going soon. This has been an awesome podcast. I could literally, um, I mean, I have tons of more things I could ask you. There's just so much here. And um, again, I'm a huge fan of all your work. I've referred to so many of your studies. Uh, I've had so many podcast guests who have referred to so many of your studies. Um, I've read all, almost all of your books. I will not say all of them because there's quite a few, uh, but I appreciate all you do. It's been really cool to be able to bring you on and talk to you. Um, if you want to let the listeners know where they can find all of your info, your books, what you offer, all that kind of stuff real quick before you go. I'd love that so I can put it in the description and people can start consuming some more of your content. Yeah, sure. I'll just say I'm an educator. My uh, goal is to impart knowledge and do it in a uh, evidence-based format, which is taking science and then putting it into practical terms. So the kind of the melding of science uh, into practice and uh, just Google me. Uh, you can find pretty much all you want. Or I'm on Instagram uh, at Brad Schoenfeld, PhD. I'm on Twitter. Uh, that's at Brad Schoenfeld. And then I'm on Facebook. You can just search me on Facebook and you'll find me. Perfect. Yeah. And all those books are on Amazon as well. So I'll link all that in the description. Um, and again, thanks for coming on and spending time with us, Brad. My pleasure. Brad.